I want to encourage you to open up to Exodus chapter 32 in your Bible. That's uh, page 62 in the Pew Bible. So Exodus 32 in your Bible, page 32 if you're using the Pew Bible. And as you're getting there, we're continuing the second half of Exodus 32. And in many ways, last week was an exercise in contrasts, if you will. On the top of the mountain, you'll remember the Lord was giving Moses the plans for the tabernacle. A dwelling place through which the eternal and infinite God, the eternal and infinite God would reside with his people. But as I say, contrast, that was happening at the top of the mountain, at the bottom of the mountain, at the foot of the mountain. The people were rejecting Moses and making demands for a golden calf. And you'll recall that Aaron, in an effort to be a good priest and keep everyone happy, did what we as pastors are always tempted to do. Give the people what they want rather than what they need. Their proposed creation, you'll remember, this golden calf, and the real important part last week of the sermon was it was not intended to replace God. Their golden calf was an attempt to reduce the Lord down to a size, to a power that they could control and harness for their own ends. That's what we left last week. Moses is now coming down off the mountain. He didn't know. You're going to find out as we begin to read Exodus 32. Moses coming down off the mountain, even though the Lord had told him what to expect, he had no idea what he was getting into. Let us hear from Exodus 32, starting with verse 15. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there is the sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, Why, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild, and that Aaron had let them get so out of control, so becoming a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, 
But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. (sighs) We follow Moses down the mountain, and before we get to the bottom, we encounter Joshua. And it's important to note that Joshua was not amongst the people. Joshua was at a midpoint, a prearranged meeting place. And it's also important to note to understand Joshua's reaction that Joshua was, among any things, a soldier. So when he hears the noise coming out of the camp, he immediately assumes that they're being under attack because earlier Joshua had led the Israelites, remember, on the way to Sinai, he had led them on the ground against the invading Amalekites. So Joshua hears the ruckus that's going on down there and he assumes we're being attacked again. And in a way, he's right. But Moses knows better. God told him what was going on down there and Moses tells Joshua, the sounds from down below are not the sounds of victory or defeat. They are the sounds of surrender. They are the sounds of total abandonment to self. They are, if you will, narcissism gone wild. And then very quickly we get to the base of the mountain and we see what Moses sees. And as Moses sees with his own eyes what's going on down there, we get a glimpse of a picture of a life without God. And that world without God begins with seeing that everything, everything is broken. It's all fallen apart. And and Moses hit with the realization of this reality of the brokenness of everything, the the reality of seeing how Israel has made a mockery of this covenant that God made with them. Moses, we're told, throws the two two stone tablets, shattering them to pieces. And coming down the mountain, we're kind of told about these tablets. You know, the, the stereotypical view is we think the two tablets Moses was holding was first five commandments, second five commandments. But it's actually two copies of the, of the Ten Commandments. Back in the day when you made a covenant with your people, you made two copies of that covenant, one that went to one party, one that belonged to the other. Moses has both copies because he also has the plans for the tabernacle. He's going to give one to the people. The other one's going to go in the tabernacle where the Lord resides. We're told that these tablets, these stone tablets, were the very work of God. It's the ten words written, we're told, by the very hand of the Lord. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. These stone tablets that Moses is holding represent at that time perhaps the most valuable thing on earth. And Moses, when he sees what he sees, takes this and shatters it. The stone tablets in many ways are a contrast to the golden calf because these stone tablets represent, they command what is the highest in us. A life of faith and obedience. These stone tablets represent what we were all created to be. Life at our best. And in contrast, the golden calf, this wooden image overlaid with gold, gold represents the lowest in us. How bad it can get. It represents a life without God where we make a religion out of ourselves. Where we convince ourselves that we, I, am the center of the universe. Moses 
destroys the two tablets. Do you realize Moses is the first person to break all Ten Commandments at once? <laughs> Twice. But it's not an, it's not an out-of-control overreaction on Moses' part. I re- it's really important we understand what takes place here. It's not some gut-level anger that Moses has. What Moses does here is a very calculated, symbolic action. Because the breaking of the tablets represent what he sees, the breaking of the covenant. Represents that everything's fallen to pieces. The tablets are destroyed by Moses because he wants the people to see, to understand that the relationship that the tablets embody is in pieces. Now I don't know about you, but more often than not, if we're going through life and we're paying attention, we generally can see it coming before we come crashing into a wall. If, if you're paying attention, that's often the worst part, isn't it? When you know it's coming, there's no way around it, you're almost, it's worse than the impact itself. And if we're paying attention, we can see it coming before we hit a wall. But I find more and more, we're so busy, we're so distracted, whatever label you want to put on it, most of us have our head down so much, we often don't see it coming. And we need the sound, we need the sight, we need the force of impact to realize just how bad things are. Can you relate to that experience where you didn't see it coming and hitting the wall as painful as it was, as surprising as it was, at least got you to stop and realize how bad things are. Moses is smashing the tablets to sound the alarm so the people will realize they've hit the wall. And there's another piece of intentionality here as the text tells us that he did it at the foot of the mountain. This is very significant. Moses shatters the tablets at a specific place. He shatters the tablets at the very place where earlier the wedding had taken place between Yahweh and Israel. He shatters the tablets at the very place that's the official gathering place where the worship of the Lord takes place, where the altar of God belongs. Moses is attempting to bring the festivities to a screeching halt. He's trying to get everyone's attention that the party is over. And yet, if you were reading carefully, based on what happens next, it would seem that most of the people don't seem to notice or pay very much attention. And as a brief aside, we can relate to that too, can't we? Aren't we so busy? Aren't we so, dis- so distracted that haven't we, aren't we used to the alarms and sirens in our life too? I'll give a very trivial example. We all set alarms. Does anybody not use the snooze bar? That alarm goes off. Bam! Snooze bar. How many of us are used to on the freeway or on the road, you know, we hear the sirens, we see them maybe in our rearview mirror of the ambulance, and we pull over because that's what we're supposed to do legally. We pull over for a second, maybe we're slightly annoyed. Maybe we're driving on the freeway and traffic slows up because there's an accident. And for the briefest of moments, we're a looky-loo. Oh, what's going on there? But then we just hit the gas and move on. We become numb to the alarms and sirens in our lives. And that's life without God. Life without God is where the alarms and the sirens are going off, but everything's broken. So no one hardly notices. But then all of a sudden, it gets personal. Then all of a sudden, it gets local. Moses tries to speak to all the people, but very little people pay, of the people pay attention. They hear the alarm. So then Moses gets personal. He gets local. He goes to Aaron. He goes to Aaron, the brother of his that he left in charge. And he calls Aaron out. You'll notice that he begins by giving Aaron the benefit of the doubt. But as it gets more local, more personal, do you notice what Aaron does? Aaron points the finger elsewhere. 
A world without God, a life without God is where everyone blames everyone else. Aaron's series of responses are beautiful. They're beautiful. We laughed a little bit because they're very, very familiar, aren't they? Because they're our default pattern in our lives without God in them. (laughs) Aaron starts at a very familiar place. How could you let this happen? What did you do? And Aaron deflects. Moses, you know how evil these people are. We laugh. But don't we do the same in the midst of all the things that we can talk about? We can get together and talk about the problems in our world, politically, socially, economically, within the church. We can get together, and the first place we'll go to is generalizations. The first place we'll go to is stereotypes. We will easily, without even realizing it, like Aaron, demonize. And I say demonize, and I don't mean it any less. Aaron says, you know how evil these people are. You know how evil those Democrats are. You know how wicked those Republicans are. You know those people, these kind of people, how quickly we can categorically put a non-face on an entire group of people as a way of putting blame elsewhere. And when that doesn't work for Aaron, when Moses keeps pushing, Aaron then goes to another place that we like to go to. Aaron, if you're, if you're, very, if you're really paying attention, Aaron just kind of parrots back what happened. But if you're really reading between the lines, Aaron gets a little passive-aggressive with Moses. Hey, man. You know, uh, the people came to me and said, uh, we need somebody to lead us, and we don't know what happened to that Moses guy, so we need you to make some gods. Hint, hint, it's your fault, Moses. What took you so long? Dude, you left me in charge, but were you going to ever come back? The people were freaking out. You put them in that state of mind. I just was entering in. How many of us in the midst of the crises around us go, hey, man, I had no choice. I did what I had to do. I did the best I could. You would have done the same. You shouldn't have put me in that situation. It's your fault for putting me in that situation. Doesn't work. Moses keeps pressing, and Aaron finally goes to the most beautiful place of all. Well, you know, that's how it was. I told the people, give me the gold that you have, and I took it, and boom, out came this calf. <laughs> just, just happened. It was supernatural. It was God. He forgets to mention the tools that we heard about that they used to fashion this thing. No, it just, boom, it happened. And we laugh, but we can get to that same place of ignorance. Ignorance is bliss, man, right? How was I supposed to know? How was I supposed to know it was going to happen? It just happened. The classic teenage response, it just happened. I didn't do anything. It just happened. The car crashed all by itself. Yeah, I was driving it, but I... I burned the carpet. I, you know, it's, yeah, it was, it was this candle I had, but I, I don't, oh, that relates? And it's not just teenagers. As adults, we claim ignorance. Moses' exchange with Aaron is very revealing, isn't it? It, it hits so close to home. It's very revealing because it kind of reminds us of the fall, doesn't it? It kind of reminds us of the beginning of our story. You remember. You remember Adam and Eve. You remember Adam, that man of all men who said, woman. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Now I am complete. Life can begin. And only moments later said, this woman that you put here with me, she did it. She did it. She made me do it. That's right. This is life without God, my my friends. Life without God is a world where everyone else is to blame. And I take no responsibility whatsoever. 
The only problem with that world is it's how you think too. So life without God is where you're all to blame and I take no responsibility whatsoever, but at the same time, you're saying the same thing to me. And so what does that fundamentally mean? No one's to blame. No one's to blame. And that gets us to what Moses then, when he turns from Aaron, sees in, in, in technicolor, the wide spectrum. We have this very interesting place where it says that Moses saw that Aaron had let the people get so out of control that they became a laughingstock to their enemies. And I assure you that awkward translation of that word, we use the word laughingstock, it was no laughing matter. There's one of two options of what Moses is seeing. Moses is seeing that they're so out of control they become a laughingstock either means one, Moses sees that these people are a joke. And what I mean by that is they are so out of control that they would be perceived as weak by their enemies, meaning they would be vulnerable to attack. They're so fi it's fixated on themselves that they're just easy pickings. That's one possibility of what Moses sees. The other possibility is that these people have become a laughingstock can mean that they are so out of control that they are going to resist anyone who tries to oppose or stop them. And what that, what the, if you're not catching that, we're, when we hear there'll be a laughingstock to their enemies, we think of enemies being like the Amalekites. But what it could possibly mean is Moses is saying they will be an enemy to us. They are so out of control and they will continue to be out of control that they're going to oppose and fight back anyone who tries to stop what they're doing. They are so unrepentant. Meaning, think of it this way. It's trying to contain how bad things are getting. And what this is bringing out, you know, maybe when you hear this, you think, what's the big deal? It's a little party, you know, got out of control. A little idolatry doesn't hurt anybody, right? No, what Moses sees is that it's something that we don't talk about when we engage the problem of sin. We use that three-letter word sin in the church a lot, but what is sin and what's the problem of sin? Well, one thing we see in this passage is that the problem of sin is way bigger than we think it is. That one way to think about sin is that it's like pollution. One way to think about sin is it's like infection. And what Moses sees is that the pollution is spreading. The infection is spreading. This is getting bad. And it's so bad that it's going to threaten the life of the people of Israel. We need to understand that a world without God is a world that we would say is godless. Life without God, without God means a world that's godless. It means a world in which everybody does their own thing. Everybody looks out for themselves. Everything's broken and everyone else is to blame. It's chaos. And it's chaos of the kind that takes life rather than brings life, that threatens life. And that's why Moses says, we've got to do something. Now this might seem to you like an awkward place to take the offering, but that's exactly what we're going to do. Because... You've learned, I hope, from other pastors, myself included, that part of why we do take an offering during worship is, is all, it's all about offering our best. We take the offering and the idea is we're to offer what we're most thankful for. We're to offer what we're most proud of. We're to offer our best. And you've learned that part of why we do that during the offering is because God deserves the best. We should give the best of what we have to God. And amen. Out of gratitude. But I want you to understand the offering for another reason why we take it in worship, that this text speaks into in a way that you may never have heard it before. Part of why we take the offering is so that we can surrender our idols. Part of why we take the offering is so that we can surrender our idols, both our actual idols and our potential idols. We talk about in the offering, we offer our best not because God needs it. We're offering our best because think about it. The idols in your life and our mind, are they going to be the things that we really don't care for very much? Are the idols in our lives going to be the things that, you know, are not the best? Uh, they're, they're okay. 
The potential and actual idols in our lives are going to be the things that are the best in our lives. They're going to be the things that we can't live without. They're going to be the things that we love so much that, God, you can have everything else, but don't take these. And so God asks for our best. God asks for those things that we love so that before they become idols, or if they become idols, we surrender them to him before we bow down and worship them. And so as we pass the plate and as you put something in it this morning, think of it in a different way. Think of it as giving your best to adore God. But think of it also as God's opportunity for you to surrender the gifts so that you don't mistake the gifts for the giver. See it as an opportunity to appreciate that it's not about us. It's not about it. It's about him. As the ushers come forward, I invite you to use the insert and reflect on the questions that are there as we take the offering and then we have a piece of special music to help us enter into that place of reflection. Let's take the offering together. I wrote this song a couple months ago um, after meditating on just how we usually wrestle with temptations and failures in our life. You okay? Wrestling with the fact that God still calls out to us even when we feel like we've turned away. should introduce myself to you I'm the secret in your heart every time you whisper I love you I'm the guilt inside your smile the poison in your words I'm the shadow behind your eyes I'm the doubt that tosses and turns you I sleep And every time you weep I'm the feeling that makes your skin creep And you already know That you should leave me You will never go Cause you still need me You need me And I'm the reason you have no joy gives me pleasure to see you sitting all alone and I'm the thought inside your side that makes you a wretched man and keeps you from going home and you already know that you hate me. But 
you will never go you just stay just stay away you thrills and all those little skills the ones you've come to love I'll drown you in your own guilt and all the blood you spilled and all the ones you loved and you already know that you need But you will never go You'll never say, save me You'll never say you know that Henry is uh, being seen by the paramedics and is doing much better. Just continue to pray, but he looks like he just uh, was choking on something, and, but they're checking him out. We've seen, we've reflected on how bad the problem is, of how desperate a world is without God, but what's the remedy? As we continue, we see the remedy. We see the, a very dramatic picture of a, of a phrase we often use of the cost of discipleship. Moses has seen, and now it's decision time for the Israelites. In many ways, it's decision time for us. And the starting point of the remedy is turning around. It's this word we use in the church known as repentance. And repentance, if you're familiar with this word, is turning around, but it's more than just a state of mind, turning around your mind. There's a physicality involved. There's a sense of we have to actually make an effort to turn our lives, to turn 
what we're doing over and around. And this is really symbolized by what Moses does first. He actually takes the people into an action of repentance before he even calls them to repent as he takes their golden calf. This image, this wooden thing that's overlaid with gold and he burns it and melts it. Moses is revealing to the people what this God is really worth. And we read that he takes the charcoal ashes, that he takes the golden slag, and he dumps it into their major water supply. Now, you could read this text superficially and think that he actually goes around and makes everybody drink. That's not what happens. Moses takes the idol that's burned down and puts it into their major water supply. He's literally getting rid of it in front of them. He's making it unable to be reconstituted for them to make it again. And he sprinkles it into the water supply so that Israel, in a, in a sense of irony, will be forced to ingest her God. And in ingesting this false God that she was worshiping, this false idea of what God is, the people will be consumed by what they, by what they thought was consuming them. They will see as they consume this would-be God what it truly is as it becomes waste, trash. Repentance is not just about a state of mind. There's an action, a physicality involved. What Moses is showing the people is it's not enough to simply name our idols. We have to destroy them. And trash is the only place for our idols. You know, we don't talk a lot about idolatry in the church, but if we do, if we go there for a moment, let me ask you this question. Is it just a, a gut check? When's the last time you smashed one of your idols? You may know what they are, but our default is we just put them away. We just put them to the side. Moses understands the power of idols. They have to be destroyed. They have to be surrendered. Repentance is not just a changing of the mind. It's a changing of how we live our lives. And repentance is the beginning point of the remedy, but then it, repentance leads to a choice. As after Moses does this with the golden calf, he then says to the people at the base of the camp, choose whose side you're on. Repentance is about turning around and choosing a side. It's a, it's, and then in that choice, the dividing line is between truth and lies, what is true and what is false. There is no middle option. And even in the church, we like to talk about some kind of gray area that doesn't exist. There is no middle option. Moses makes it clear when he says, choose a side, believe in this God or deny this God. Thy will be done or your will be done, but choose and as the Levites rally, they're the first to rally, the choice that's before us, that's before them, becomes quite literally this clear. It's life or death. And we read this very disturbing part of Exodus 32 where we're told that the Levites went back and forth from one end of the camp to the other. And I don't know how you picture this in your mind, but I want to give you some context. This isn't some random killing spree. The Levites aren't armed with swords and they just start hacking and slashing people in the camp. The wording that they went back and forth from one end of the camp to the other implies that this wasn't some kind of killing spree, but in fact, it was a systematic, careful movement through the camp. In essence, the Levites went through the camp, calling the people individually to repentance, confronting them, pleading with them to give up their false worship and to return to the Lord. It was an open invitation. In case you're losing count, it's the third time that God gives an out. The first is the smashing of the stone tablets, the alarm, the wake-up call. The second is who is on the Lord's side after having seen what happened to this golden calf. The third is the Levites going person to person and saying, please, stop worshiping this. Come back to the true and living God. It was an invitation, an open invitation 
but it involved a choice. And those who blatantly refused, we, told, we are told, were killed. 3,000 died that day. And those who died, the text doesn't shy away from it. It makes it all the harder to read. Those who died that day were brother, friend, and neighbor. You know, we can read this and we can kind of go, oh, you know, 3,000. Some of us may be shocked. Some of us may not so big deal. If that happened today, who are you willing to lose in our number today? Make it real. Who's, who, who, who in that percentage are you willing to see get taken out today? And I wish I, had, I, I wish I could not say what I'm about to say because it would make it easier to go where I want to go. I wish I, could, I, I could, could help you if maybe you're going, man, that Moses was one tough dude. But if you didn't catch it, and i got to point it out if you missed it, this execution of judgment doesn't come from Moses. It comes from the mouth of the Lord. And that right there makes this, hard, this, this passage, this whole encounter, harder for us to swallow. I mean, my gosh, isn't this the reason why most of our friends have left the church or why some of them don't want to step into it? Isn't this the, exactly the kind of thing that they point to? I mean, and if we're really, really honest, seriously, they got killed? They got killed? Why does this happen? Why is that? I thought we were talking about a God who forgives. What, what, what's up with this? This seems kind of extreme. And... I, I wish I could say to you this morning that as challenging as this is, that I could give you the easy, simple answer, the one sentence you can say to yourself and to your neighbor to make it all okay. I, I desperately have tried to come up with that bumper sticker, and I can't. What I can say to you in these moments, and there are many of them in Scripture where I look up at this God, and this God that I know, there's also this place, this God that I don't understand, this God that I am not always comfortable with, this God that I'm not always, oh, it's no problem, I find myself that I can stay in that, that place, hitting that ceiling that I can't penetrate, that mystery that I can't in, enter into. Or in the midst of that, holding on to that, not letting it go, I can engage what I can see. I can engage what I do understand. I can wrestle with what is before me. And I think there's enough here that we have some things we can wrestle with. The first is that what we see here, even though we may not like what we see, is what comes through loud and clear is there's no such thing as private sin. I've talked to you before about this idea that we have of individual salvation is bogus. This whole idea that it's just Jesus and me, and I hope you're cool with God, but ultimately it's just Jesus and me, is not biblical. There's no foundation for it. My relationship with Christ is tied to your relationship with Christ. It cannot be divorced. And so if that's true, if you're with me, if you've heard that before, then the counter also has to be true. There is no individual sin. There is no such thing as, hey, that's my business. Yeah, I'm doing it wrong, but let God deal with me. You stay out of it. There's no such thing as individual sin. This is where our understanding of sin gets blown open by this passage, that sin is not a private matter. It's not an individual matter. It affects us. And that's why when we confess a little bit later, some of you, and I've shared this before, um, have said, well, why do we, I don't like that corporate prayer of confession. I don't like that. Because I'm, I'm not guilty of those sins. Why do I got to pray those out loud? I won't even go there on that one. Because in the history of the church, why there's always been a corporate prayer of confession is because we understand in that moment, we put ourselves in that place where we're not just confessing our individual sins. We recognize the sins of our brothers and sisters are our sins too. It's a package deal. The good and the bad, the yin and the yang. There is no individual sin. We see that here. And we also see that sin has serious consequences. 
that impact all of us. At this moment, Israel is God's repository, if you will, of saving truth. What Moses sees is that the contamination of idolatry, the false worship of a true God, is not only jeopardizing Israel in the moment, but it's jeopardizing the fate of the whole world. Israel was created to be a light to the nations. So what's at stake as this spreads, this cancer spreads, is not just the Israelites in the moment, but generations of Israelites and Gentiles to come. Now, again, some of us still are like, man, that just seems so harsh spiritually, contamination, disease. Isn't there a better way to deal with it? But let me put it to you this way. We have no problem with it physically. If I came and said, hey, by the way, need to share with you, I have this really infectious disease that's pretty much killed everyone I've been around. None of you are going to come up and say, give me a hug, Pastor Chris. Love love up on me. You're going to either run for the door or you're going to kick, throw me out the door. We get it physically, but spiritually, we seem that it's not the same. It is the same. But, and I really need you to hear me on this, what we also see from this is not a prescription. This is not a prescription, hey, go kill for the sake of orthodoxy or truth. I'm not telling you to go pick a fight or pick up a knife or a rock or your Bible and start whacking people over the head for the sake of orthodoxy or truth. What we have here is not a prescription. What we have here is a wake-up call. That the threat of sin is a matter of life and death. It's that serious. And what that means is that following God means not only embracing our sin, but dealing with it together. It's not enough to just call out our idols and our sin. We have to deal with it. That's the cost of discipleship. And if you're at this moment right now where you're going, "Uh, see, this is all Old Testament God. I don't like that God. Can we go to the New Testament now? Consider this scary possibility. Take what we've just read in Exodus 32 and let me echo in your your minds the words of Jesus in the New Testament in the Gospels who says, if you don't deny your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, to follow me, you have no part with me. Jesus said that? Yes, he did. What? It's life or death. There is no middle ground. It begins... In our hearts, as Jesus tells us, the looking at the log in our own eye. But the remedy is not after we look within and honestly surrender our idols, it also involves practicing accountability. There's a word. What's happened to accountability in the church? Where is accountability gone? And many of you may go, accountability, that's a good word. What's wrong with that? Let me use the traditional word. What happened to discipline in the church? Whoa, discipline. Hairs are going up on the back of our necks. Discipline within the body. Immediately, I'll go even further. What about long, long ago in the church, a form of discipline that was practiced that was called excommunication? Whoop, whoop. Alarms are going off right now. Abuse. Scandal. Discipline. Excommunication. That's the dark ages. And I want to acknowledge that, yes, in the history of the church, the idea of accountability, discipline, and specifically excommunication has been terribly abused. Terribly abused. But we shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We need to understand that it's always been a functional part of being the body of Christ that we practice accountability. And excommunication was a part of the church before it became abused because it was understood as being the extension of what's taking place here. We don't literally kill people, but excommunication is a form of death where we look and we see and we remove someone from the community We exclude them for participation in the life of the body because what they're doing threatens the rest, is infecting the rest. Now, right now, some of you are still, and I get it, 
this just seems judgmental. This just seems, this is, this is the church I was trying to get away from. But the problem is, we hear discipline and excommunication, and we think it's all about sinning. But guys, reset with me. If discipline and excommunication are just about sinning, then all of us are standing outside that door, and it's locked, and we can't get in. Discipline, excommunication is not just about sinning. The point was in the body of Christ, church discipline, accountability, was for those who flagrantly sin and repeatedly refuse to repent after having been confronted. The point that I'm trying to get to you is we're not even willing to confront each other anymore. This passage says we have to be willing to confront each other. And don't hear me wrong. Accountability and discipline is part of our transformation, our growth in Christ, but it's not supposed to be mean-spirited. The Bible is clear. We are to speak the truth to each other in love, but we are to speak the truth in love. It's not to be done smug or arrogantly. It's to be done as I imagine this took place in Exodus 32 with a heavy heart. Does anyone in their mind actually picture the Israelites going through the camp with a sword, killing brother, friend, and neighbor with a smile on their face? Saying, well, you know what? Sucks for you. Accountability, discipline in the church is not done with arrogance or smugness. It's not done with truth at the expense of love. It's done with a heavy heart. It's done with a lot of tears. But we do it because it's a matter of life and death for us and for the community. And to get real personal, guys, I've been your pastor three years. And, it, and this isn't just about grace. I could speak this to any church. I could speak this to the wider Christian community. There are people sitting here and sitting in the wider church who do not have a saving knowledge of Christ, yet they call themselves Christians. There are people who are following a false gospel. There are people who are living two lives. They come to, lot, to church and they have their perfect church life. This is what you see. And yet their marriage is falling apart. They're alienated from their kids. They're caught up in all kinds of stuff that's tearing them down. That's inconsistent with the freedom and abundance and life that God wants us to have in Christ. And I'm not saying all this if that's where you are to put the, the responsibility on you. I'm putting the responsibility on us because in the midst of that reality, we know what's going on and we are saying nothing. You have people in your life who you know their marriage is falling apart. You know their relationship with their kids is in trouble. You know they're engaged in stuff they shouldn't and you are looking the other way. You are looking the other way because we are unwilling to hold each other accountable because the idol in our lives, one of the biggest ones, and it's in the church, is our community, our friendship, our relationships. Some of you are not here because of Jesus. Some of you are here because of the other people that are in the room. And as long as that stays hidden, as long as that stays underground, life and death are at stake here. And it's dying that's taking place, not life. We need to be willing to risk our relationships for the sake of the resurrection of those relationships. We need to be willing to face the death, the loss that we may experience with each other because we believe in a God who conquers death. We can do that kind of stuff out in the world, but in the church, we practice accountability because we understand that that's how we get rid of the idols and we are free. We, are, we need people in our lives. I need people in my life who are willing to say something that I don't want to hear. What you're doing is wrong. We need people in our lives who are willing to come to us and say, in love, you can't keep doing what you're doing. There's too much at stake. Who are willing to come and say, you're not following Jesus. I'm not saying to question anyone's salvation, but I am saying to question their walk. 
We need people who are willing to come and to say what no one else around us will say, but they're thinking you're causing harm to yourself and you're causing harm to others. You need to stop. Beloved, it's this, this harsh, this fine a point. If we don't practice accountability, what we see from this passage, if we don't practice accountability, we are complicit. If we are not willing to speak the truth in love, if we are not willing to risk our relationships, if we are not willing to engage the reality of our lives, then what we are doing is we are helping others make and worship the very idols in their lives. And we are allowing others to do the same for us. And I want to make it clear as we get to the last part of this, it's not cut and run. It's not, hey, by the way, you're not really following Jesus. Or, hey, I think you got real problems in your marriage. Got to go, bye. It's about solidarity. Moses tells the Levites to go through the camp, but notice what happens with Moses in the midst of tears. It's not a party anymore. There's loud grieving going on. Moses goes back up the mountain. Moses get, engages in tough love and intervention. He goes back up the mountain after, because he realizes that this is not enough. All that's happened is the music has stopped, the party is over. They've put the, uh, you know, a tourniquet on so the bleeding is stopped. But Moses understands that more is needed. The relationship is broken. The covenant is broken. Moses understands there needs to be atonement. Things need to be made right. And Moses goes back up the mountain. He goes back up the mountain because he understands it's not just about accountability, it's also about solidarity, being willing to put yourself on the line for another person. Moses understands that something more has to happen. And we can imagine as he's climbing up that mountain, where is he getting this idea that there's anything else that can be done? Maybe he's thinking about Passover. They experienced on the way out of Egypt. Maybe he's realizing in that sacrifice of innocent life, the lambs that, that protected the, 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 the guilty from death, that maybe there's some way that he can speak to God. And so Moses comes before God and he confesses the people's sin and asks for their forgiveness. Moses doesn't say, hey, that was all their problem. You deal with them, Lord. Moses says, Lord, the people have sinned greatly. Forgive them. And if you won't forgive them, then take my life. Accountability is about solidarity where I don't just tell you what's wrong in your life, but I'm willing to stand with you in the midst of Jesus making it right, of Jesus fixing it. And Moses puts his life on the line. But I hope you were surprised by this as I was. God doesn't accept his offer. And it's not so much that God doesn't like the idea as what Moses is offering is the heart of our story, the gospel. The Lord rejects Moses' offer because he's not able to carry it out. Moses can't carry it out. He doesn't have what it takes to see it through the end. But Moses is on to something. He's on to something that repentance is about confession. And confession is about accountability. And accountability is about solidarity. And Moses gives a good model for us as we enter into a time to confess together. As Moses, when he comes before the Lord, doesn't understate the sin. He is entirely honest with God. And Moses does this gives this, this model of confession. He lays it all out there because it's not that God doesn't know if we don't tell him. We need to lay it all out there for ourselves because if we don't lay it all out there, then we're keeping stuff back from God that God needs to heal, that God needs to do that work upon. Repentance is about laying it all before God and being willing to accept the consequences because, beloved, forgiveness means nothing if you don't believe you need to be forgiven. If you're holding anything back, you don't believe it needs to be forgiven. Mercy is meaningless if you don't believe you did anything wrong in the first place. 
And grace isn't amazing unless you realize the difference between what you deserve and what you receive. And so as we take a moment to confess, the questions that are there are desired to stimulate us into a place of confession and we'll be closed out with a prayer. Lay before God. Lay before God the things in your life that are broken. And if you're willing, and you don't have to say it out loud, you know the people in your life, lay before God the things that the people in your life need to lay before him too. Not in a judgmental, smug way, but in an act of solidarity. Confess for this body. Take a few moments, and then Elizabeth will close us out with a prayer together. And then we'll come to the table. Let's confess. We do not help our brothers and sisters in Christ to live in a right relationship with you and with our faith community. We do not seek to speak the truth to them in love. Instead, we want to run and hide, avoid the difficult situation. Please forgive us. Please help us to hold each other accountable, to be held accountable by the community and to hold others accountable in love. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. May we delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Beloved, we can count on our Savior, on our God, to forgive us when we confess our sins. Amen. Something about doing that, that, that sense of accountability. We've just engaged in confessing together in accountability. We've just engaged in solidarity by lifting that up together that enables what we're going to do next to be different than it is out there. It's intimate. It's real. We're connected. We don't just shake hands, we pass the peace and forgiveness of Christ. And so out of that sense of accountability and solidarity, both in our confession and in our forgiveness, I invite you to greet one another with the love of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and do that. I invite you to grab a hand, reach across, and as we prepare to come to this table, to share the words that Jesus taught us to pray. Say them with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.
may be seated. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they had did with the calf that Aaron had made. That's where our text ends. That's the end of chapter 32. But there is a whisper of hope within that passage that brings us to this table. It's the enigmatic God who says that the people will pay for their sins, but he doesn't say when and he doesn't say how. And it's at this table that we get the answer to that question. God always gets the last word. You know, stories like this in Exodus 32 often lead, as I said, to people perceiving God as cruel and unforgiving. But that whisper of hope that's in that passage, what's revealed at this table, shows us that beyond the second chances that God gives amongst the people of Israel through Moses, is this God who, even though they won't take that chance, still has the last word through his son Christ. This table, the whisper of hope that leads us to this table, is that the God on the mountain is willing to become Jesus on the cross. This God is willing to become fully united with us and extends to us a hand of forgiveness. And all we have to do is lay it down. Lay it all down, surrender our idols and put it all in his hands. We come to this story and the end of this story, if we didn't have this table, is truth or consequences. But the whisper of hope is that this table says we are invited to this meal because in Jesus Christ, it's not truth or consequences. It's truth and consequences. It's both. Because this is the place where we remember and proclaim that this God in Christ takes the full and complete burden of our brokenness the infection of our sin. He becomes what we are so that we might become what he is. Moses was willing to offer his own life, but he couldn't cover the sins of the people. He revealed what we know desperately in our hearts, what we heard sung earlier, we need a savior. And in that reality, Jesus gathered with his disciples took bread and he blessed it and gave thanks for it and then he broke it and he spoke to the longing of our hearts when he said this is my body take and eat it and in the same way he took the cup and said this is the cup of my blood it is the cup of a new covenant my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins take and drink from it my brothers and sisters in Christ this table is truth when we come to this table, we remember the truth and we remember the consequences. We proclaim that in Christ, we lay down all that is false in our lives and in laying it down, we receive all that is true in this world and in this life. I invite you to come. I invite you to come and once again, not individually, but let us together experience the truth and let us together experience the consequences. Let us together find the grace and love and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Come as you are ready.